Good morning. Good morning. Welcome to class. Most of you are here who are regulars, know who I am. I'm Wendell Moses. I'm filling in for Tim Jennings. First, I would like to thank whoever's been participating in the AV section of this group, because for various reasons, a couple of weeks it's been call. I was heading toward the class and then got a page and got headed the other direction. Um, but then I was able to look at that class after hours. And, um, you know, I'm sitting in a medical setting um, with my iPad and I actually got to start watching the class before surgery started on one, one week. And I'm very, very thankful for the class and I'm sure other people are as well. Um, I'd also like to thank um, the class for their participation and support of my daughter when she got married at the end of April. Um, and that was very thankful for that. Um, announcement, um, Tina West, her um, father passed away yesterday, um, Jack Henderson. Um, and so if you remember her and her family and prayers, um, we're not made for that. You know, as, as I've told someone just rec- you know, a few minutes ago, uh, my uh, mother-in-law's on hospice and we're not made for this um, process of saying goodbye or um, either for the person who's doing it or for the ones who's going away. Anyway, so let's begin our, our class with prayer. Most graciously, Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege of studying about you, talking about you, learning about you, and becoming your friend. May we honor you in this discussion. We ask that you send your spirit into this class. Be with those that speak. Be with those that listen and be with those who are watching elsewhere at a different time. May we honor you. Amen. So this is the 13th Sabbath lesson for this quarterly on family seasons. And the title is Turning Hearts in the End Time. Um, The memory verse, uh, Malachi 4, 5, and 6. In the um, lesson guide, it's from the New King James Version. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he will turn the heart of the fathers to the children, the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. Um, What do you hear when you read the Bible? What is your understanding of the primary purpose of our Bible? Our guide. Our guide. Okay, so um, what is included in the Bible? Do's and don'ts, I would imagine. Do's and don'ts? Well, I mean, to show you how. Not exactly you can't do it, but the consequences. I used to, when I hear verse like that, I say, oh, God will send curses. If you don't do, I will curse the earth. Yeah. Russell. I was just reading this morning in uh, Acts of the Apostles where Ellen White's talking about God's Word, Scriptures. He says it's a transcript of God's will and purpose for mankind, which I thought was a very nice, succinct way of putting it. Okay. What is excluded from God's Word, from the Bible? Okay. So some people read the Bible, it's a code book. Okay. It's, um, 
it seems that God does say things that he's commanding people to do at various times. Okay? Others look at the Bible as just being a storybook. This is a story of whatever. Okay? With rare exception, um, it's not stories about any of my ancestors. With rare exception in the room, I see one person whose maybe forebears had something to do with what happened in the Bible. Middle Eastern origin. Okay? The whole rest of the world is ignored by and large through most of the scripture. Okay? Some people look at the Bible as being God's promises. And they read everything as being a promise. You know? And whatnot. Um, others see it as Earth's history, but as I just mentioned, most of the Earth's history is not included. So, for example, the major civilizations of Central Africa, not a word at all. China. I mean, I think there's the word China, yes, if you, depending on your translation, um, the word China is mentioned, but nothing about the dynasties or the civilizations or the wealth of the world or the learning or philosophy or anything it's just not there and for someone who like myself came from northern europe there's nothing you know there's just it's it's absent okay so um the next thing is in describing and talking about the bible and particularly looking at these this memory verse today do you see the bible as declarative or descriptive. Okay? Many of the commands of the Bible are not described as Bi- in, in the Bible as commands. What are some of the commands in the Bible? Be What's, perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Good. So that's Christ's d- demand or command. Okay? When I ask, you know, okay, so I asked a couple people this week and said, okay, give me a command out of the Bible. And they said, the Ten Commandments. Do you realize that nowhere that I can find in the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments are ever called that? Except in your headings in, the, in the, the, your Bible. It's not called that, okay? And if you, depending upon how you read the Hebrew or whatever um, language you're, you're reading from, the Ten Commandments could be read as, if you remember that I brought you out of Egypt, you will not. Okay? It's not a, okay, I mean, and just thinking about it, okay, let's think about one of the commandments, okay? Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not murder. Okay, thou shalt not murder. Okay? I have not been tempted to murder my neighbor recently. (laughs) (laughs) And truly, if, if you look at the commandments, okay... Most of those could be read in the sense of, if you are my child, you will not. There are some, I mean, there are some, the, the fourth commandment, as we read it, um, in, our, in my understanding, the fourth commandment would be, remember the Sabbath day. That is a, 
a encouragement to remember. It's not a prohibition. A lot of the other ones are read as being prohibitions, but it's prohibitions if you have an unhealed heart. Okay, so they're a mirror about which you put your life up against and said, where, where am I? Okay, and then if you read in the New Testament, Christ's description of the commandments, um, he, he goes even further if you don't think. I mean, you don't even supposed to think it, whatever. And so it's a, it's a description of what should happen if you are God's child. It's, it's interesting that the first time that I could find that the Ten Commandments were called, the Ten Commandments were in the story of the rich young ruler. And the rich young ruler came to Christ and said, what great deed do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And Christ said, what about the commandments? He said, which ones? Because he had the whole, you know, 400 commandments and all sorts of stuff, etc. You know, which ones are important? In the word that Christ uses to describe the Ten Commandments, that could also be translated commandment, precept, tradition, or requirement. So depending upon how you're reading that, you know, it's like, well, what are you doing with your life? Christ isn't necessarily telling him, you know, whatever. Yes. In Arabic, which is very close to Hebrew, uh-huh. they are not commands. They are admonitions or reminders. Excellent. By the way, I tried to learn Arabic. A family came to America and I tried to learn Arabic to be their friend or whatever. I admire you. Um, <laughs> so, anyway. Yeah, I wasn't trying to read it. I was just trying to speak it. So I got, you know, what are these, um, you know, cassette things that you or, or CD things that you listen to and whatever. Anyway, you know, the golden rule is a command. Okay. But again, it's a description of how you should act rather than a proscript. I mean, a, a prescription. It's, it should be a description of who you are. Okay. The study guide divides up uh, this week's lesson into um, four or five um, uh, daily lessons, etc. And, you know, they do not include the last portion of our memory verse as our reading assignment. Did you notice that? So our, our memory text is, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he will turn the heart of the fathers to the children, and the heart of the children to the fathers, and then, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. That's not even mentioned. They didn't even address that. Sometimes we like, don't like to address certain things because we don't like the, the, the characterization that that is. Okay? But in actuality, depending upon how you read that, is that truly a proscription or a, a declaration or whatever of what's go, of going to happen? Or is that a description of what is going to happen based on something? So um, if you read the contemporary English version for, this, for the memory verse, I, the Lord, promise to send the prophet Elijah before that great and terrible day comes. He will lead children and parents to love each other so that when I come, I won't bring doom to the land. Or the new, king, the, the, the new century version, Elijah will help parents love their children and children love their parents. 
Otherwise, I will come and put a curse on the land. Where else in the Bible does God describe cursing something? Genesis 3. Okay. So, what did he curse? The land. The land. Okay. For Adam's sake. Okay. What else did he curse? I'm sorry? He cursed the fig tree. Christ cursed the fig tree. Okay, and I'll get to that, but let me come back to Genesis. What else did he curse at the time of the original declarations? The serpent. The serpent. He cursed the serpent. He cursed the ground, as he mentioned. You know, women are described as having pain in childbirth, and that was described to me by a woman this week. So that was a curse. Okay. <laughs> Right. Say there will be painless to pain, so your your pains of childbearing will be increased. It also describes women as being subjugated to men. Okay. He also cursed Cain in the next story. Okay. So you'll be a wanderer, you etc. I wonder if we read this with a different filter on our lenses. If this is not all descriptive, okay? Cain, who killed his brother, did not feel comfortable in his own skin and kept wandering all over the place looking for a safe place. He did not feel safe and say, Lord, this is too good for me. Someone's going to kill me. He said, No, I'll put a mark on you so they won't kill you. Okay? In the cursing of the fig tree, what happened there? So I went to the Holy Land on a trip. You know, I had a great time. I strongly encourage you to do it, but my wife tells me to shut up about it because I constantly say bad things about it. But, um, <laughs> well, they try to tell you that, hey, this is where so-and-so was and everything else, and yet it's nowhere close. Um, the, walking in Jerusalem, the way of the cross, right? You know, the whatever. And then you, they happen to take you on an archaeological dig. It is three stories below the street level. It, the street is shifted over. And where the Roman soldier, the way is, is nowhere close to the street that you're walking on. It has nothing to do with where Christ was 2,000 years ago. Okay? Sorry. Um, <laughs> we went to the Sea of Galilee. Okay, rode a little boat in Sea of Galilee. They had a little parable and they had, had some fish and all sorts of stuff, etc. And so you think, oh, this is where Christ was, right? Sea of Galilee, right? We went to the home of Andrew. I think it was Andrew. Can't remember. One of those guys, one of the disciples. He was a fisherman. We went to his city. It is now a half mile from the Sea of Galilee. It used to be waterfront. In 400 AD, there was a huge earthquake and it shifted the whole Sea of Galilee a good distance. So, I mean, I don't want to discourage you there, but anyway. Um, but the one thing I did do that I thought, well, maybe Christ was somewhere close to this, was um, we went up to Temple Mount. And on the Temple Mount, you're yeah, on top of whatever. But the day before, on Sabbath, we went to the steps. Now, the, the 
Palestinians or the whoever is ruling the, the, the place now has sealed off the entrance to the Temple Mount from the Temple Steps. So you can't walk up the Temple Steps and go onto the Temple Mount. But we walked up the Temple Steps and off to the right was a fig tree. And I thought about the story of the cursing of the fig tree, you know. And I, I realized it wasn't the same fig tree, okay? Um, <laughs> although maybe if someone would... <laughs> so what happened in the cursing of the fig tree? It stopped producing. It was from itself as being full of fruit, and it had none. Right. So here it was something that was betraying a lie... And Christ used the cursing of the fig tree as an enacted parable that would stick with people. I mean, I'm still thinking about the fig tree thousands of years later, okay? When I see a fig tree. I have a fig tree in my backyard that has not had any fruit on it for three and a half years, okay? This year, I think it has four figs on it, but I don't know if it will ever become true figs, you know? I understand that um, fig tree. So it was an enacted parable. So, yes, he did something and it happened and whatnot, but I'm not certain that's in the same vein as the curses that God talks about in Malachi. (sighs) Going back to the memory verse of the week, how and why would the coming of God bring doom to the land? Even earlier in the text, how can the day of the Lord be both great and terrible? It's going to be great for one class of people, and it's going to be terrible for these other class of people. Okay. And it'll be a blessing of deliverance for one class of people, and it'll be a cursing uh, destruction for the other class of people. And maybe great is in the sense of large. Okay? Yes. Maybe, you know. So, where else are we described as as... Cursing the land or the land being a problem or whatever. How about in the fifth commandment? Thou shalt be lo- love thy day, I mean, um, honor thy father and thy mother, that the land you live on, you can still continue to live on. This is a description of what's going to happen if you don't act justly. You know, I'm, I usually don't quote people who I disagree with um, in the Bible. A lot of the book of Job is written not by Job or by God. It's written by his friends who God said, you had it all wrong. Okay? But I am going to currently refer you to Job 36.10. That is a statement by Elihu, who I don't like, but anyway... He makes them listen to his warning and orders them to turn away from wrong. I think that's right. Okay? God commands, when we are immature like children, to keep us from suffering the consequences of our immature choices to stop doing stuff. Okay? He does try to protect us. I would say that most of the Bible is descriptive God is describing bad things are going to happen to you if you go across that line. 
So when you consider the Bible as being God's platform for design law? I would say it's a description of people who have obeyed God's design and people who haven't obeyed God's design and some of the consequences. And sometimes we look at the consequences that have happened to them as being acts of God that weren't. Other than God's laws, our design laws, and when we step out of those, we suffer the consequences. Yes? So, I don't know if I'm correct in this, but the way I seem to read this memory text is that these people are having their hearts changed, and if their hearts aren't changed, that they suffer some consequence when Christ comes. Okay, but as, as people read it, you know, okay, so I read this, ver- this memory text out of 16 versions. Okay? I'm sorry they chose this one because of the wording of it. Okay? I agree with you. I think this is a a description of what will happen, but I don't think God is going to be doing it to us. Okay? And we'll get to the more about that in Tuesday's lesson. But uh, I I just think that um, this is not something that God's going to come and destroy the earth because you don't do something. Okay? I do believe the earth was going to be destroyed. Okay? Just in case anyone second guesses that. Going to the Sabbath afternoon's lesson, the emphasis is on the promises of God. They are described in the second paragraph as our only hope. When are promises any good? When they're kept. When they're kept, okay. That's, that's after the fact, okay. And now there are no longer promises. They are descriptive, okay, of what happened. When are promises any good? When they're made by someone who is trustworthy. Okay. When you trust the person or entity that makes a promise, when the entity that's making the promise is trustworthy... They're only as good as the person that makes the promise, okay? Promises are only good if conditions, people, or circumstances do not change. Now, 44 years ago, I stood before a a group of people about this size in a little church on Sand Mountain and said, I do. I promise. If my wife realizes that I have changed into a mean, hateful, vindictive individual, that promise is no good. Okay? Promises are only good if you believe or trust the entity that's making the promise. Okay? We talk about promissory notes. What is a promissory note? Okay, so I, am, I promise that I will pay a given amount of money to somebody if they'll give me the money now. Okay? You know, there's statements that we have this in the vernacular, and you can take that to the bank. Okay? That's assuming the bank is any good. <laughs> My parents lived through an era called the Great Depression, when the banks weren't any good. Okay? There was a crisis a few years ago in which things the banks were declaring were of value were of no value. Okay? 
so promises are only good if you trust the entity, the entity is worthy of trust, and nothing changes. That says something about the promises of the Bible. But there's also promises that are bad. <laughs> I promise you that if you do this, if you cross your eyes, they're going to stay that way. You know, I mean, the kind of things you say, you can also promise bad things, whether it's truthful or not. You can also say, I promise you that if you run out in the middle of the street, something is going to run over you, stay out there long enough. So there's that kind of promise too, the kind that what happens if you don't, that kind of promise. Okay. So in the teacher's comments um, and later in, the, in the, the lesson guide, it says, God's restoration of this sin-fallen planet is an irre- irrevocable promise. We can't apply that promise in a way that undermines free will. But if anyone can persuade a heart, the Spirit of God can. In this hope, we place our confidence. And it's a true statement. In um, in review of Herald, uh, there's um, a statement, um, review of Herald, December 2, 1890, Jesus, who has redeemed us from Satan's power, has exalted us to the high privilege of being co-laborers with himself. All who choose Christ as their leader solemnly pledge themselves to his service. If they are true to this covenant, their feelings, their sympathies, their labors are with Christ. Eternal things will be their highest consideration. They will search the scriptures with earnest interest and with prayer that they may know the will of God and do it from the heart that they may work for the best interest of all whom they associate. Did you hear the word promise? No. But they use other words for promise. They solemnly pledge themselves. That's a promise. The covenant, if they are true to this covenant, that's a promise. Okay. Um, Sunday's lesson. Let's go back and reread the memory text. Um, Behold, I'll send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. What does this sound like? If the hearts of the fathers are toward the children, and the children are toward the fathers, what does that sound like? Relationship. What else? Unselfishness. Unselfishness. Reconciliation. Reconciliation. With the original design. Is there another term that we often use in the religious realm that has to do with people coming back? Harmony. Harmony. Atonement. Atonement. We will be one. Okay. It reminds you of, of the prayer of, of Christ in Gethsemane in, in, as recorded in John 17. John seventeen twenty one. I would that be as one. Um, there's a version of the Bible that I like in this, this relationship. It's um, the American translation. It's by Moffat. And um, in John 17... Um, 
Let them all be one, just as you, Father, are in union with me, and I am with union with you, let them be in union with us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, so that they may be one, just as we are. Um, sometimes the you, you and me and me and you and all that sort of stuff doesn't make sense. But in union with does. So, um, oops, I keep hitting this thing. This is the first week I've tried to go away from the paper to a real, you know, whatever. All right. Um, going to uh, Sunday's lesson, question, read the question. Where's Sunday's lesson? Read the question. What do you think the phrase, turn the hearts, means? Then, in the paragraph below it, it says, Several applications are possible for this phrase. It refers to the reconciliation of the people of Israel with the Lord. God, as Father, has turned from his wrath toward his children and calls them to return to him. It refers to reconnecting of their later generations with their faithful ancestors through the covenant renewal. Did that bother you? Mm-hmm. When do we ever see God as turning from his wrath toward his children or de- demonstrating wrath toward his children? What does he have wrath against? Sin. 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 He doesn't have wrath against his children. Now they use, the, in the lesson guide, they use Micah 7, 18 and 19. I read 16, 17 versions of that text. And only one of them do they talk anything about wrath toward his children. All the rest of them talk about wrath against sin. That is what he's angry about. It's destroying his children. The, um, the, the next issue is... Um, it describes the father-child relationship. Okay? Now, maybe it's just because I feel angst over being a poor father at the time when I was raising, or our kids were being raised, or they weren't being raised by me. Um, my daughter came to me when she was 13 and said, Dad, haven't eaten a meal with you in more than a month. I said, oh, yes, I have. I always try to come home. So she got the calendar down. It had been six weeks. So I have a, dis- a hard time with father-children relationship as God and his children. Okay? There are other people who have a difficult time because they had a poor father in other ways. Okay? I think we should never describe God by my failings. We are God's children, whether we understand that we are or not. God does not have defects in insight, character, or attitudes that we as fallen human beings possess against our children. So, we need to be careful. Okay? In the memory text, um, I mentioned this before, I guess I can go on, but um, it's like the fifth commandment. 
The fifth commandment is in, in Deuteronomy 20, uh, I mean, sorry, Exodus 20.12, as well as Deuteronomy 5.16. Deuteronomy 5.16, it says, Honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God has commanded you, that your days may be prolonged, that it may go well with you on the land which the Lord your God gives you. That's a promise. It's a description. It's not a thou shalt. Let's go to Monday's lesson. This is about the story of the widow. Just to remind you about the story of the widow, you know, he was over by a brook. Elijah was over by a brook after, with a no rain issue. Ravens came and fed him. He, he drank out of the brook. The brook dried up. What are you going to do? So God sent him to a little heathen town to a widow. He walks into town. He sees this person and he asks him for a drink of water. Why? He was thirsty. But why did he ask for water other than that he was thirsty? Have a, another reason. There's a rule in Middle East. I don't know. I don't know. You, you, you can never deny that request. A request for water is sacred. Okay? After she turns to go and get the water, she says, oh, and by the way, bring me some bread. Okay? So after she said yes... Then he asks for the next question. Okay? Bring me some bread. And she says, sorry, this is my last meal. And then, you know, he lived with them and the meal never ran out, etc. And then what happened? Her son died. And she came to him and said, you're just trying to show me that I'm I'm a bad woman. And that God is punishing me for my badness. And... Her son was resurrected from dead to life, okay? And they were reunited. Um, in the, the uh, second question, um, what effect did the reunion with her son have upon the Phoenician widow's spiritual experience? First Kings seventeen twenty four. What is her response? She answered, "Now I know that you are a man of God, and that the Lord really speaks through you." Okay, wait a second. This guy comes to her. She's getting ready to eat her last meal. She now has eaten out of this little pot for how many months? Okay? And she doesn't know that he speaks for God? I'd have to say from a mother's point of view, the miracle with the son way outweighs eating for months. Did she trust Elijah before the miracle? She fed him. Fed him every day. She trusted him to a limit. Okay. Did she trust him more after the resurrection? Okay. Are miracles done for those of great faith or little faith? You look through the Bible. You know, Gideon. You know? Samson. Look at all the... The miracles are done for those who have little faith. 
Okay? You know, so then I thought, wait a minute, that doesn't make sense. Christ said, your faith has made you whole. So if, if the miracles are done for little faith, why does Christ make that statement? Is he rewarding the little faith that we do have? Yeah. So if this person who came to him didn't trust him at all, even to ask for his help, nothing would have happened. Okay? So Christ rewarded that little bit of trust, this little bit of faith, with a miracle that then establishes their trust in him. Okay? So without the little bit, it never would have happened. But the miracle is not because they have great faith. It's because they had a little bit. They're willing to ask him the question. If we don't trust someone, we're not going to ask him for anything. Okay? Christ used that widow as a comparison. Yes. He compared her faith, contrasted it with the lack of faith with the Israelites. And here we got himself run out of town. Threw him over a cliff, yeah. Or, or attempted to throw him off a cliff. Um, so... Um, remember, miracles are given to help us encourage us more to trust, not because we always or already do. Well, Jesus, after the feeding, I think of the 5,000, he was kind of like, you know, people, unless you see miracles, you won't believe. You could see the frustration. I wish you would believe me because I'm telling you the truth. But I have to do these miracles so that you'll understand that I'm telling you the truth. I wish that you would just understand that I'm telling you the truth. You can see a little bit of frustration in there. I have to, you know, I have to go around doing miracles or you won't believe anything. This goes back to the um, resurrection of Lazarus. Okay, it talked about Christ crying at the tomb. Why did he cry? Was, was he crying because his friend had died? He knew what he was getting ready to do. He wasn't crying because his best friend had died. He was crying because in spite of the resurrection, the leaders of the religious organization of that time were going to kill not only him, but Lazarus. You know, when he came in for the triumphal ride in Jerusalem, he stopped and wept over Jerusalem. How I'd like to gather you as a hen gathers her chicks, and you wouldn't come. That's why he's crying. He's heartbroken at their obstinacy. Well, he predicted it in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. He even used the word Lazarus. He was talking to the Pharisees, and he was using this parable to describe to them what their reaction to bringing someone back from the dead would be. In the parable, he says, even if, if they don't believe in Moses and the prophets, they won't believe even if someone comes back from the dead. Because the, the rich man had said, send him back to my brothers and warn them, you know, so they won't end up in a bad place. He said, if they don't believe in Moses and the prophets, they won't believe even though I bring someone back from the dead. And he even used the name Lazarus in the parable because he was telling them right to their face exactly what their reaction was going to be to the miracle of bringing Lazarus back from right. the dead. Yeah. And, then they, and then that is what happened. 
And put him on the hit list too. Okay, let's go to Tuesday's lesson. Um, I don't like to criticize the lesson guide. Okay? I will tell you that the first half of the page is wonderful. <laughs> okay, so it's the story of Mount Carmel, Elijah, and the fiery altar. Okay? So, um, reading the first paragraph of the study guide. Um, on Mount Carmel, Elijah longed for covenant renewal on the part of his nation. A turning back to the faith of their fathers that would bring their healing to their lives, their homes, and their land. I like that, but it bothers me a little bit. How well does the faith of your father help you? Okay? Do, does God have grandchildren? Okay? He has children. He doesn't have grandchildren. So, if the faith that you, your grandfather had is the same kind of faith and trust in God that you have, then that makes sense. But you can't depend on the faith of the fathers to save you. The hour of the evening sacrifice, after the heathen priest's failure with their sacrifice, Elijah took his turn. He was deliberate. The time drew of day drew attention to God's redemptive plan revealed in the sanctuary service. The invitation, come near to me, reminds us of the Savior welcoming sinners. Parents who are pained at the waywardness of a child can be assured that God loves him or her as truly as he loved the Israelites. God works unceasingly to draw wayward ones to him. The next paragraph. Elijah's focus on Jehovah's altar finds its equivalent in our time when Jesus and his saving grace are uplifted in families. Family worship is an opportunity to talk to him in prayer, to speak of him to one another, to receive anew his free gift of salvation, and to give our hearts time to reflect on his teachings. Um, this talks about family worship, something that I didn't do. I mean, I wasn't home to have family worship. Um, I don't know if my, fa- my wife did or not. Um, it seems like they did something, but, you know, um, I'm, I'm not aware of it um, too closely. Um, you know, reading together God's word is described. Uh, in child guidance, there's this paragraph that says, The father, who is a priest of the household, should conduct the morning and evening worship. There is no reason why this should, be, should not be the most interesting and enjoyable exercise of home life. And God is dishonored when it is made dry and irksome. Let the seasons of family worship be short and spirited. Do not let your children or any member of your family dread them because of their tediousness or lack of interest. When a long chapter is read and explained and a long prayer is offered, this precious service becomes wearisome and it's a relief when it's over. I've been through some things like that. I can relate. The next uh, sentence in the quarterly says, The response Elijah requested was signal that God had taken them back to himself. First, and then it says, it has a quote from 1 Kings 18.37. says that this people may know you have turned their hearts back to you again. Wait a minute. The first sentence would signal that God had taken them back to himself. 
Who is reconciled to whom in the Bible? We are always reconciled to God. God is never reconciled to his children. He is always our friend. He's always on our side. He doesn't, it doesn't take any reconciliation to come. See, a lot of the penal substitution um, theology is about reconciling God back to his children. That is not correct. God is never gone. We're the ones that have strayed. In 1 Kings 18.37, it says, Answer me, O Lord, answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back again. It's not his heart. Okay. God is always our advocate, always our friend, always with us. He, he says he will never leave us. Okay. Romans 8, 8.26. In the same way, the Spirit also comes to help us Weak as we are, for we do not know how we ought to pray. The Spirit himself pleads in union with God for us, gro- it, for us in groans that words cannot express. In union with God. Often we have Christ facing the wrong direction. He's not pleading to God. He's, it's with God. What shall we say, Romans 8.31, what shall we say about such wonderful things as these? If God is for us, who can ever be against us? Since he did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give everything else to us? Who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for his own? No one. For God himself has given us right standing with himself. Who then can condemn us? No one. For Christ died for us and was raised to life and he is sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand, pleading for us. Can anything ever separate us from God's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? As the scriptures say, for your sake we are killed every day and we are being slaughtered like sheep. No, despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. And I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow. Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus, our Lord. It's not about him coming to us, being reconciled to us. It's about us. Yeah, he assigned such negative things to God. Jesus said, you know, if you, being wicked... Give, know how to give good gifts to your children. I mean, if, if they ask for an egg, would you give them a serpent? No. If you're wicked and you can still figure out how to give good gifts, you know, imagine what I can do. <laughs> you know, I, he only wants good things for us. He has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He, it's it's a, the pleasure a parent would get if their child died of cancer. Yeah. You know? 
The child is beloved. The cancer is hated because the child, because the cancer is ruining and killing the child. So he has a vengeance and he has a, a desire to heal in a vengeance sort of way. I come with a vengeance. I come to save you like the vengeance a surgeon would have on cancer. You know, but we interpret it that God has vengeance on people. He has vengeance on the evil that's killing his people. And it's a big difference. My specialty in medicine is trauma and um, birth defects. And um, occasionally, because of, because I'm the old guy in the office, they'll bring me stuff and say, what do you think about this? This week they brought me an MRI of an infant that has a huge something wrong with the body. You know, I, I wasn't angry at that little baby at all. Okay? But what's killing the kid frustrates me. Okay? And... Um, I need to get the best care wherever that kid can go. It, it so happens that that's not my specialty, okay? I'm not tumors. Um, so, you know, we're, we're problem solving on what place in the country can this child go that will get the best care for this condition. Um, we're never upset with the, the kid. So, anyway. The next paragraph, the fifth paragraph on, on Tuesday's lesson. The all-consuming fire fell, not upon the guilty, but upon the sacrifice, pointing forward to Jesus, who has made sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. When did God's fire fall on Jesus? When Christ died, did God the Father do it? Christ was lamenting the loss of the in the fire. Yeah. Rightly understood. Fire is where, where he, he wanted to be. The fire was removed. What did he say about his power as a member of the Godhead? I can give up my life. I can take it up again. It had nothing to do with one member of the Godhead killing the other. Um, In fact, he said, don't you realize that with I could simply command that these legions of angels would come and protect me, and they would. But that wasn't his purpose. I mean, even with a thought, he could have killed the people who were killing him. I like the description of if somebody was holding your head underwater and you had a knife, so you had the ability to get them off of you so that you could breathe again, but you wouldn't use it. I mean, he had the power to come down off the cross. He had the power to take it, to do away with whoever was torturing him. And he had continual people saying, save yourself, save yourself, save yourself. And he could have. But it wouldn't have saved, it wouldn't have met his mission. He wouldn't have saved us. And they said, oh, he saved others. He can't save himself. When does God's fire ever fall on the wicked and destroy them? Okay, destroying the sin. They get destroyed. When does that happen? When they reject Okay, so they reject him, and so I'm going to zap him. Okay? Why does, why does sin destroy the wicked? Because they can't tolerate love. That's what sin does. It destroys. Okay. When they 
cannot be separated from the sin. Hosea 4, 16 and 17. Good news translation for Hosea 4, 16 and 17 says, The people of Israel are as stubborn as mules. How can I feed them like lambs in a meadow? The people of Israel are under the spell of idols. Let them go their own way. Or in New American Standard Version for the same translate for the same verses. Since Israel is stubborn like a stubborn heifer, can the Lord now pasture them like a lamb in a large field? Ephraim is joined to his idols. Let him alone. That's sad. You know, that's that's what made Christ cry at Lazarus' tomb. That's what made him cry as he entered Jerusalem. He was crying because they were so attached that they were going to get hurt by their own actions. What was John's message? Okay, now, I'm sorry, going to Wednesday's lesson. What was John the Baptist's message? What was his message that he preached? Repent. Repent. Turn from sin. Turn from sin. Turn to, to Matthew 3, 2. What was his message? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What was Christ's message? Matthew 4.17 Since he went about preaching the good news what was Christ good news? There is a remedy for your condition. What does it say he preached? Repent for the kingdom of heaven. Exactly the same. Okay? What did Christ, Jesus, tell his disciples to preach? Matthew 10, 7. And as you go, preach, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Is that the gospel that we are preaching? What is our gospel? No, wait a minute. You know, what, what, what is the gospel as given by, what, what describes the gospel? If, if you were to ask someone in America today, what is the gospel, what are they going to say? Christ paid your debt. Christ paid your debt. Please say the sinner's prayer and you will be saved. What is the difference between repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand and that message? Repent means change your hearts and change your ways. But what's the good news? I'm here to transform you. Okay, we had a salesman come to our house last night. Okay? Want to give us a new roof or something. Um, We didn't think it was good news. I have other people come to my house offering me good news. And it's seldom good news. What is good news about this? 
I don't have to be the person I am. Okay. Well, I mean, it's, so the kingdom of heaven is at hand would indicate that God isn't far away. He is here. He's okay, so just like we read before in Romans 8, God is for us, blah, 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 etc. But what's the real good news about the kingdom of heaven is at hand? That we're no longer going to have to do this? That my mother-in-law won't die? That um, Tina's father-in-law is, is going to be resurrected? What is the good news about the kingdom of heaven is at hand? That Christ is always with us. The good news is about God. If God is truly the person that he's made out to be, vindictive, vengeful, against us, then him coming is not going to be good news. The fact that it's close is even worse news. Okay? Just let me live my life and, and you know, whatever. That's not good news. It's good news only if God is the person who he is. Okay? The kingdom of heaven is at hand is good news because it's about God. It's not about something else. I think we're over. Sorry. Let's bow our heads. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege of reading your word. Be with us. May we grow to be like you. May we give up the things that are hindering us from taking the steps we need to take. Amen.